Today's episode is brought to you by Pond5. Pond5, that's a small body of water, and the number five, is an online marketplace for stock video, images, audio, and more, which can be instantly downloaded for legal use by filmmakers, podcasters, musicians, designers, YouTubers, and other media makers. Stock media opens up an entirely new world of creative options and allows you to produce content better, cheaper, and faster. And did you know you can sell your media on Pond5? Tens of thousands of artists around the world sell on the site, and they're making a living by doing what they love, making media. So what place better to sell to and to buy from than Pond5? And through January 1st, you can use the promo code WRITERS for 15% off all your purchases. That's Pond5, small body water, number 5, with the promo code WRITERS with a capital W for 15% off all your purchases. Thanks to Pond5 for sponsoring this podcast. Now entering Nerdist.com. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator of the Nerdist Writers panel series. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker and let me know who you'd like to see on this series. I'm always looking for new ideas for TV show, movies, books, comics, anyone you like who writes things. Do me a favor, though, and check the archive to see if we've already had that person on whom you would like to hear from. Uh, I am a television writer. I've written for... Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently on the Netflix uh, DreamWorks show Puss in Boots. Uh, I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage production in the style of old-time radio, which is a weekly podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For more information, visit thrillingadventurehour.com. Hi, this is Ben Blacker, creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel and the Nerdist Comics Panel. Hey, speaking of comics, did you know that my writing partner, Ben Acker, and I have some Thrilling Adventure Hour comics that you can buy right now? They are digital-only exclusives, Issue Zero origin stories of Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars, and Beyond Belief. Uh, These are spinoffs of the very popular Nerdist podcast, The Thrilling Adventure Hour, Uh, They're done by the same art teams that will be doing the image comics that are coming in February, but I wanted to give you a a little sneak preview and and provide a jumping-on point for anyone, whether you're familiar with the Thrilling Adventure Hour or not. These are 10-page comics. You can get them at thrillingadventurehour.com. Click on Shop and click on Comic Books and uh, pick up these really cool Thrilling Adventure Hour comics. Sparks Nevada is illustrated by Jay Bone, who is terrific, And uh, Beyond Belief is illustrated by Phil Hester, who is brilliant. So check out the two digital-only comics. We don't even know if these will be collected anytime, uh, and they're a great jumping-on point for people who are both familiar and unfamiliar with the Thrilling Adventure Hour. They're just good stories. Uh, Listen, not to brag, but Comic Book Resources gave each of them five stars. That's ten stars total. Uh, ThrillingAdventureHour.com, click on Shop, click on Comic Books, and pick those up. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you listening. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blacker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. And I've got a script uh, that I wrote. It'll be my directing debut that Ivan Reitman's producing. No and we're just, a feature? Yeah, feature. They've made um, The Blacklist last year. And uh, we're just looking for the leading man, the right That's guy. Awesome. Well, yeah. it's awesome, except we can't find the well, leading man. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's like I've been hearing about those uh, from a friend of mine who's direct, he's directed some indies, and he's kind of getting ready to make the jump, and it's like. They have a list of names. And that's it. And who they think are yeah. stars or who can open a movie is 
it's a bizarre list. Like it's not people. It's cr- you I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll, I'll save it for the podcast because <laughs> it's, it's more interesting. It. We've started. Look, I've got Nick Santoro. Oh, oh have we? Yep. Oh, we am I supposed started. to put? Am I supposed to put headphones on? <laughs> no, don't worry about it. All right. <laughs> they look. I, I always feel so cool when I have we, them on. If you would like to wear them, you can. No, wear them. <laughs> it's okay. Um, well, um, yeah, go ahead. But I, I I would love to hear about this. Uh, oh, the whole process of getting yeah, um, it's, <laughs> features is it seems so silly to me. Features is horrible. Feature features <laughs> features are horrible, and the worst thing about features is all the jagoffs from features are now coming into my world, which is television, yeah. and they can't do it. <laughs> I'll say it. Mo- mo- these feature guys can't do it. They can't do the pace. They mm-hmm. can't. Um, most of them have not really produced. Mm-hmm. They write scripts and hand them off and have no involvement whatsoever. Yeah. And, and um, that, even the script writing is a, like a three-year process. Yes. We have to make a new episode. Especially when you're doing network television, 22 episodes, which is what I'm doing with my new show, Scorpion, right now. Um, we have to do a new episode every eight days. Eight days. And I, I've seen feature guys, and they're friends of mine, some of them, um, have full-on freak-out panic attacks. And because most television executives, uh, a lot of them, are self-hating because they all wanted to be in the movie business years ago. <laughs> now that television has become so hot, they're going, oh, my God, we need to bring in feature guys because that's who the, what they always wanted to do. And the feature, most, most of the feature guys I've met with and worked with, they've openly told me, I can't do this. Yeah, I mean, we, we've, this has come up on the panels a lot in the past couple of years because it is a phenomenon that's, that's kind of happening in force these days. Yeah. Right? And it's, it's a bit of this, it's sort of a similar thing to we have to find the leading man. Yeah. To be in this feature, it's these TV <laughs> people saying, "What's a name that we?" What's like, a name? It, it eliminates the risk for them. Yes, right? and, and but in fact, it makes it worse. Well, it depends. I mean, look, we had it like, our, yeah, it can. I mean, we had um, on our pilot. I had the, the pleasure of of working with Justin Lin, who's a really nice guy, and for a guy who's had as much success as he's had, is incredibly humble. Um, and Justin, is, the pilot was kind of known for that last action sequence, um, which was crazy, which had, you know, a race car going 200 something miles an hour <laughs> while a, a 747 was basically eight feet off the ground over it. And only someone with Justin Lin's skill set and the team that Justin's built around him can pull sure. something like that off. But directing and, is also a sort of a one to one correlation between movie and TV in many ways. Right, I don't understand what you mean by one-to-one correlation. Like, if you can direct a feature, you can probably direct a, a TV pilot, especially um, you have well, more time on a pilot. Well, I, well, actually, I would I would counter that the experience I've had when working with two very successful feature directors who have directed my last two pilots mm-hmm. that I've had opposite reactions from them. <laughs> um, uh, Justin, by the third day, looked at me. By the end of the second day, we hadn't finished the first day's work. Um, and he looked at me and on the third day and said, I don't know how you do this. Um, you know, a a sequence that in a film, you know, on a film, you'll take sometimes three, four days to shoot a scene, Mm -hmm. uh, in television, you're doing five scenes a day. Um, Gavin Hood, who, you know, won the Oscar for Sotsi for best foreign film, who's an amazing director and Justin's an amazing director and they're both incredible people. I both consider them friends. Um, Gavin, who's this, uh, lovely, gentle South African man. And he has this incredibly deep voice and he'll, (laughs) he'll, Nicholas, (laughs) I, 
I can't keep up with this pace. I need your help. And he's just, he's, I just made him sound like Darth Vader, (laughs) but he's, um, he's this wonderful guy. And, And on the second or third day of filming the breakout Kings pilot, um, he, he looked at me and the same thing. He looked at me wide-eyed and said, how do you keep this up for a full season? And Breakout Kings was only 13 That's episodes funny. a season. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very difficult uh, uh, medium television because it's so much being done in such a short period of time, yeah. which is why everyone wants to do cable now because it's, it's much more <laughs> humane. <laughs> it's sure. 10 to 13 episodes. You have time. Sometimes in the same amount of time. You're doing mm-hmm. half the work. Um, I mean, look at the, Sopra- yeah. the Sopranos. The Sopranos came out with a season every two years, yeah. and it was just you had time to do it. They didn't take all that time to make it, but they had a lot more time. But even, I mean, we've talked to Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould right. and guys like that who have been working a year now, and the show hasn't premiered yeah. yet, but they've had their room going or they've been in pre-production. Uh, but I'm thinking specifically of... You were talking about leading men, know, for, I Well, for a writer, though... Uh, as you say, a lot of feature writers don't have the production experience. The The job of the creator of a TV show, yeah. if you're going to be a showrunner, and I mean, we can look to like Jonah Nolan, who's actually d- figured out a way to do it because he's brought in people who have TV experience right. to help him. Um, you know, that, that job is of being a TV showrunner is very different from being a feature writer. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's night and day. I've, I've written, written features. I've had features that have been made. They're yeah. pieces of shit. Um, Wait, I want to talk about one of them, but go ahead. Okay. Um, and, uh, I, I can tell you that the difference is this. When you write a feature, you sell it, they take it from you, they kick you in the ass and say, never call us again. I had a movie where I, I tracked down the, it was based on a true story. I like to do true story movies. Mm-hmm. I tracked down the person that the mo- movie was based on. It was a little girl. I optioned her life rights out of my own pocket. I spent five years trying to get it made. No one wanted it because the lead was a 12 year old black girl. Not a lot of movies made with 12 year old black kids as the lead. I then said, screw it. I'll write it on my own. I just wrote it on spec, sent it to Ice Cube, got him attached to star in it, oh then sold it to. Uh, Harvey Weinstein and his brother and my agents came back and said oh well this is what they're offering for the script it's a it's a fair price blah 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 and I said that's great I go what's my producing fee and my agents like what do you mean your producing fee and I go I found the story I optioned the story I attached the star I go if I just did one of those things I would have gotten a producing fee I did all three of those things and wrote the fucking script I go but once you write it in the features, you go down five pegs and you're just an asshole with a typewriter. Yeah. And so I said, and they, and I said, I want a producing fee and I, I want a substantial producing fee because I, I did all this work. I handed them a very good script with a lot life rights locked up with a, with a star that can open a movie. And of course, Weinstein company came back and said, screw that. He's a writer. He doesn't get a producing fee. And I said, okay. I said, I, I don't, and then they, they we're not making the movie. I said, I don't need to make the movie. I make my money in television hmm. and that's how I feed my family and Features are my hobby. Novels are my hobby. Mm-hmm. And the Weinsteins blinked and gave me a producing fee. Um, that's what writers need to do more often is writers need to stick up for themselves and stick up for other writers. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're a showrunner, when you create a show, I mean, since this, I mean, I just sat in an hour and a half of traffic to get here during that phone call. I, you know, starting this morning, I was getting texts at 730 mm-hmm. from set. I just got a phone call from, uh, 
our line producer, our writer, an executive producer writer on the show. And just as I was pulling in uh, to park by your by your office, I got a phone call from the lead of our show, uh, Elias, to ask a question about a scene. Oh um, it's it's nonstop. Yeah. The, the wardrobe goes through you. The props go through you. Um, re, you have to you have to write the script. You have to rewrite the scripts. You edit every episode. You do the music spotting. You pick the needle drops. You cast. Um, and the frustrating part is now that I have my my first feature that I'm going to be directing with Ivan Reitman producing, I'm having actors tell me, and wonderful actors, and telling me, and I'll, this is the story I was getting to at the beginning mm-hmm. of this, telling me in a very polite manner, um, I love the script, I would do it tomorrow, but not with you directing, because you don't have any experience. And I, <laughs> I look at them and I go, I have so much more experience yeah. about how to run a production and how to direct. And television the directors come and they sit down with you and you you say this Absolutely. is you need to do this shot yeah. we need to come in here you're on set and you tell the director no 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 we need to come around i want to go off the book up onto his face then we're going to pick up the person coming in through the door that's what's going to motivate the camera move yeah. um i've been directing television for 15 years now um and the frustrating part is that I have substantially more experience, as most showrunners do, sure. um, on how to make film and especially how to film something and not waste an actor's time because you know what you're going to do in post. You know what you want the scene to be, especially if you've written it. Um, then almost any kid coming out of film school who's done a short film, but they have no issue hiring that person as a director. Right. Um, and I had an incredible conversation, one of the nicest, the most fun conversations I've ever had with Zach Galifianakis. He had me over to his house. He made me a delicious smoothie. <laughs> and we sat at his kitchen table. Um, and he was such a nice guy. And he said, I have so many scripts here. And I read this script. Um, and I love this script. Uh, it's a script I, I wrote, Time and Temperature, this blacklist script that I wrote. And uh, he said, but uh, are you sure you want to direct it? And I said, yeah. I go, Warner Brothers offered to buy it for me with Steve Carell starring and <laughs> wouldn't let me direct it. And I said, no. I go, that's how badly I want to direct this. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, he goes, I'm just terrified to work for the first. I think he had, he had just worked with the first time director. It wasn't a good experience, something like sure. that. And, well, there's and, always some reason. Yeah, but, but, but he was so I, kind about it. And I love that he was up front. I think Zach sure. Alphanag is such an upstanding guy. He's a very good guy. Because so many other people would just give you a bullshit answer right. and lie to you. And he was so honest. And I found that That's I've so never funny. been more ref- – it, it was never more refreshing to be rejected. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So how do you – or can you convince these people I'm not a first-time director? I try to explain it to them. I'm like, listen, if you take the budget of the pilot and then the budget of the 22 episodes of Scorpion and you put in the, 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 the P&A costs and all the promotion and advertising, mm-hmm. um, it's a $180 million investment by yeah. CBS Studios, and I'm in charge of it. Yeah. Um, but there's also, like, they, how, you know, how do you make them know I'm not just a CEO there's this yeah. creative aspect because, well, because they, in very many ways you are a CEO. Well, you're you're a CEO of the of the production, but the moments, the the, yeah. the dialogue, the characters that you create, it all comes out of art. You just have to to be a showrunner. You have to be an artist who can also manage and 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 be organized. Mm-hmm. Um, organization. I tell my kids all the time. I tell my wife sometimes. <laughs> uh, organization is the master skill. Uh, I, you know, I tell my 10-year-old, if you want to be anything in life, you want to be an astronaut, if you want to be a school teacher, you can't do it if you're disorganized. And I think showrunners have to be organized. Absolutely. And you have to have an incredible team. Like, you're not doing it by yourself. You have to have an incredible line producer. I luckily have one. You have to have incredible writer-producers that work with you. Thank goodness that I do. Um, 
and you you have to have a great crew, and one, that's one of the benefits of filming in L.A. We film a show in L.A., and yeah. they're the best crews in the world. Um, how, how do you, you get away with that? Film, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I wrote a show set in L.A. Mm-hmm. and <laughs> still no guarantee, ho- and, and still no guarantee, and hoped it would be uh, filmed in L.A. Mm-hmm. and it was. And and thank God we are because one we have this incredible crew and it would this show, you know people say well let's film it in New Mexico let's film it in Texas let's film it in Toronto let's film, yeah. film it in Louisiana and you get good crews there but I really think you just don't get sure. LA crews and we I filmed the se- season one of Breakout Kings in Toronto, the studio wanted to save money it was Toronto for New York. And at the end of the season, it cost them money because, one, we were dealing with massive snowstorms. Mm-hmm. We were dealing with, f- like, 34 minutes of sunlight every day because it was Toronto <laughs> in the winter. And we were dealing with crews that are good but not always L.A. good. Sometimes you can get a great sure. cr- Toronto crew, but, but, but we had a very good crew, but it wasn't L.A. fast. Um, it's just a blessing to be able to, to, to film it here. But how do you convince people to... Uh, to, to, to let me direct, I'll let you know when I find out. Um, I, I, you know, and it, it has scared away a few, a few actors who uh, they won't. They'll read the script and they won't even meet with me. They'll say, first time director, no." Galifianakis asked around and heard that I was a good guy, and I was a regular guy. So he's like, "I, I want to at least meet with right. him." But he told me within the first minute, he goes, "I really just want to meet because I love this script." But if you within the first minute, I barely sat down. He's like, "But if you're if you're going to direct it, I probably can't. I, I can't do it." And then I just got basically a uh, an hour long private Zach Galifianakis <laughs> right. show because he's the funniest guy in the world and the nicest guy and he told me some jokes and I laughed my ass off and I That's got a like... free smoothie but I have to move on and find someone else which is a shame because he would have been wonderful for it but there were a lot of great actors Absolutely. for that role and we'll find somebody. Absolutely. So what makes this the film for you to direct? Um, it's it's another. St- story where I, I went out and got the life rights and uh, I, it's, it's an amazing true story and it's my voice, it's comedic drama, which is what I like to write you know, Scor- Scorpion is, I believe, doing well on CBS because CBS for so long has done so well with straight procedural but no character yeah. and um, it was a little bit of a battle during the development process um, I know at one point my agent got the call and he had to call me up and he said, you know, I spoke with the execs and their exact words were they created a verb and they said that he needs to denick the script, <laughs> which meant take out all the sarcastic yeah. humor and take all the, all the New York out of it and, and, and all the dickiness out of it. And, and um, I did a little bit, but while filming, we just slid it back in there and put together the cut that I knew would work. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it tested so high and all of a sudden no one all of a sudden it went from what's with all the jokes and the humor and we need to make this a little bit more standard CBS fair to this is we're putting this in our Monday night comedy block, Um, even though it's not a straight comedy by any stretch and it's still dramatic and it's still violent at times and great action and and heart. It it has humor in it. Mm -hmm. And, And time and temperature, my blacklist script is a comedic drama. That's why Galifianakis liked it is mm-hmm. it's funny. Um, I can't write. I've written straight drama. I did Law and Order for one year. Yeah. And that was the longest 10 years of my life. <laughs> I was going to ask. It was brutal. I, mean, I, I hated yeah. it. I hated it. Uh, <laughs> well, it's also, yeah. I and mean, we've talked to some Law and Order writers, like that was, you sit in your office, you do your thing. There's right? no writer's There's no room. room. I love a room. Yeah. I love collaboration. I love, I, I love working with other creative people that you can just bounce ideas around. It's just exciting. And 
I met w- wonderful writers on Law and Order, and I you kind of wound up getting a room to some extent because I was a lawyer for years before I was a writer, <laughs> and uh, yeah, in, back in New York, and so. Uh, a lot of the writers, most of the writers weren't. So they would call me into their office. I'd call someone else and I was trying. I'm like, let's get a little room going Absolutely. in your office. And yeah. and we'd knock around ideas. But um, I hated it because there was no character. Um, and that's nothing against the show. I mean, they, no, they, they, they pay you. They gave me an opportunity. And they do what they do better than anyone. Yeah, you can't, wor- you can't take a job working at McDonald's and go, God, I hate fast food. Well, exactly. then you're the asshole for taking the job. <laughs> I worked really hard. I, I I think I wrote more scripts that year than anyone else on staff. I did a good job for them, but I knew it wasn't for me, and I just wanted to move on. And um, it was uh, still a great experience in the sense that every t- every time I write a script, I don't care what it is, you become just a better writer by the Absolutely. time you're done. Absolutely. And the, and writing those scripts, I mean, those are like plot machines. So you must have learned structure and plot and that stuff. Yeah. That's, it must have been just drilled into you. Yeah, it helps. I mean, the more you do that, um, it helps. And it even helps when you're writing something that, you know, isn't a procedural. Mm-hmm. You still need arcs. You mm-hmm. still need turns. I don't care if you're writing, a, you know, Harold and Kumar has a plot, <laughs> has a really serious plot. Absolutely. You know, I don't mean serious, like serious content, but oh. it's, it's a real plot. It arcs. Um, it's, you know, they might as well be chasing down the Maltese Falcon or, <laughs> or the Holy Grail. There's a plot there. Yeah. Um, you know, Br- Bridesmaids has an incredible structure to it. Um, the Hammer, Adam Carolla's film, has an incredible comedic structure to it, but there's oh. a structure. Um, so it's in everything. Yeah. You know, the, what I really don't like are when I watch films and at the end I'm like, what was that about? And I'm not saying everything has to have a, a you know, a shocking twist, but there no. needs to be an arc to it. Absolutely. It, uh, it's an unsatisfying experience. Yeah. It's, at the end you're kind of like, well, why did I watch this? Yeah. yeah. We as humans are looking for a certain kind of structure in our stories. Yeah. Um, let's talk. I didn't realize you, were you a practicing lawyer before you got into this? Oh picture? yeah. Yeah. I, 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 oh yeah. What no, kind I was, I started off I, I, as a, I, I graduated from law school in New York mm-hmm. and I, I went to Columbia and when I graduated, I went uh, down and worked at this law firm called Sullivan and Cromwell. Um, I, it, number of attorneys-wise, it might be the biggest law firm in the world. I mean, they have offices all over the world, thousands of, of employees. And uh, I went to work there, just really quickly realized I just don't, don't fit in. <laughs> my second day of uh, law school, my second day of law school, I called my parents and said, I made a mistake. This is not for me. Wow. I was reading, anyone who's listening to this who uh, went to law school will know exactly what I'm talking about. I was reading Penoyer. Penoyer versus Neff. It's a famous jurisdictional case that everyone reads very early on in law school. I literally got it my second day of law school to read it. And I start reading it, and it's from like, I don't even know what year it's from. Like 1794, 1812. I have no freaking idea anymore. But it's it's like, you know, wherefore art thou the king's jurisprudence i'm like what the fuck i'm like i'm like what, the, what is this i'm like this sucks and i was like a year and i was just a few months away from i took a year off in between college and law school to earn some money to go to law school and that was the best year of my life i just worked in a bar and i i lived in an apartment across the street from my old fraternity house i was like that asshole who didn't leave college who was still going to fraternity parties and he was 22 and it was and then i was all of a sudden it was night and day work and i and my parents said don't quit and my dad actually said to me, he's like, you've never quit anything in your life. And the only time my dad's probably ever lied to me, maybe other than like, you know, Santa Claus or something. Uh, he said to me, uh, with a law degree, you can do anything. It's a fucking <laughs> bold faced lie. Now, I don't think he knew any better because he wasn't a lawyer. I don't think he knew. Um, 
but he said, uh, just get your law degree. And uh, I got my law degree. And here's the thing with, oh with a law degree, you can do anything so long as it involves being a lawyer. <laughs> right. So as long as you could be an environmental lawyer, you can be an entertainment lawyer, you can be a, right. a contracts lawyer, but you're a fucking lawyer. So were you, were you miserable the whole time? The whole time. My first school? day of being a lawyer. Oh, a law school, no, because here's the other little lie that no one ever tells you is law school is three years, but it's really only one year. Mm-hmm. I actually started writing a book about it uh, mm-hmm. called uh, I, I Was a Drunk Asshole in College, But I Made Law Review and So Can You. <laughs> and I, uh, I went to law school and realized very early on, wait a minute, they start interviewing us for summer associateships after mm-hmm. our first year. And if you get a summer associateship at a big firm, which you do after your second year, mm-hmm. And that summer, as long as you don't like sleep with a partner's wife, they're going to invite you back for after graduation. So all you have to do is nail your first year. And then when you interview, if you have great grades, if you make law review, which is, you know, the top one tenth of one percent of all law students, um, you're going to get a good job offer. Hmm. So I said, all right, I'm going to stop drinking all the time and I'm going to. And I just completely changed who I was overnight. And I and I was getting up at six in the morning every morning. I was studying by seven. I would go to class. I'd come home. I'd studied. I would not watch TV anything. I'd study till seven or eight. And it was amazing what you can do in 12, 13, 14 hours every day. Yeah. And it served me well. It trained me for writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I can sit down today still. I'll go seven to seven. I'll, wow. you know, my last novel I wrote in like eight weeks because I'll just do seven to seven, seven days a week and just finish it. No and that's kidding. because of law, being a lawyer in law school. Mm. And I made law review, and I got a job at summer associateship at Sullivan Cromwell. They then offered me a full time position because I didn't sleep with a partner's wife. <laughs> right. And uh, you know, I my first day of being a lawyer, I worked until about ten o'clock, and I remember a lawyer going, "Let's cut it early tonight." And I went, "Oh God!" Oh my God! And I went back to my apartment <laughs> um, on Bleecker Street, and my uh, girlfriend uh, had a key to the apartment. She was waiting there for me. She's now my wife. And she uh, looked at me and said, how was your first day? And I started to cry. I broke down. And I just, I'm like, I can't believe I just spent three years. I'm $120,000 in debt. Like my net worth was negative 120 grand. I'm like, I fucking hate this. Oh my God, what did I do? Like I literally had a panic attack. I'm like, what do I got to get out of this? And uh, I wound up uh, having a long talk with her and she's, and she's, Oh, it's why she's great for me. She's always the, uh, if I can quote the Simpsons, she's the sober ying to my raging yang. <laughs> and she said, uh, all right, well, you can't just quit. That'll look bad. Right. she got to put in a year. Hmm. Got to at least put in a year. Oh, God. And it was like doing time. It was like, it don't, must have been. don't do the time. Don't let the time do you. You do the time. Yeah. And I was like, okay. You must have been marking days on your office I was wall. marking <laughs> days. I had a big calendar in my apartment and I'd go home and I'd knock it off. And uh, oh, I did one year, one month and one day. And then I left and I said, but I was still a lawyer. Yeah. And I said, uh, I, I just, you know, maybe if I actually am lit, I was a corporate litigator there, but I was never going to get into a courtroom. Sure. And I'm like, maybe if I actually litigated cases. And I looked through the uh, New York Law Journal and I saw an ad at eight. And it's funny how fate works out. A tiny, like, like literally, you know, an office above a pizza place, slip and mm-hmm. fall law firm. Like, you know, Some 1990s NBC premise law firm. It was a, it was a, exactly. It was, their phone number was one triple eight. I can sue. 
that's that's still their phone number. So if you get hurt, call them because they're actually very good law firm, very good lawyers. Tell them I sent you. I'll get a referral fee. Tell them Nick sent you. And uh, I still have a law, law. I still have a law license and a law practice in New York. No kidding. And uh, a very, it's very small. Um, I you know a couple of cases every few years mm-hmm. get referred to me, and I do them with a buddy of mine in New York and. Um, just settled a case recently from a guy who got hit by a street sweeper. Good settlement. Oh, jeez. Yeah. yeah and, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's okay. That's why I can speak lightly right. about it. But not so okay that I couldn't let him cash in on that tragedy. <laughs> like Lionel Hutz. Oh, my God. And uh, I, I went to this law firm, and it was night and day. I went from this big, beautiful office, overlook <gasps> a thousand lawyers, you know, town cars taking you to and from meetings, overlooking the Statue of Liberty, to literally over a pizza joint in Brooklyn. And man, did I learn about the law at that place. And it was a, it was incredible. Sure. And I just, pray, you know, you practiced in Brooklyn, the Bronx and Staten Island and Queens and hmm. everyone I represented was, you know, was everyone in the projects. And these are more my people. Um, you know, I, I grew, grew up uh, in, 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 you know, my, my family's, uh, you know, I was the first one in my family to go to college. Um, first male in my family to go to college. Um and my family was all in construction, blue-collar workers. Um, and so when I was representing people who were hurt, it's just the people who worked on construction sites and stuff like that, I actually felt like I was helping people like my dad, like my grandfather. Sure. Um, and I actually felt good about that. And I understood that. I remember once when I was working at Sullivan and Cromwell, we went out to some big fancy dinner at some big fancy restaurant in New York. I don't even remember. Maybe back then it was like Le Cirque or something. You know, I don't even know. And... Uh, after dinner was over, they brought around a little box and they were bringing it around this table. And it shows you how long ago this was. It was, uh, it was cigars that you could smoke in this section of the restaurant. And I, no one in my family smoked. No one in my family smoked cigars. Actually, my Aunt Dolly smoked cigars. Yeah, <laughs> my great Aunt Dolly nice. smoked cigars. <laughs> and uh, she was a trip. And um, my, uh, and I didn't know what it was. And someone, I heard someone say something about, oh, a humidor. Except I didn't know what a humidor was. Right. And I thought he said a cubidor. I don't know. I thought maybe Cuban, <laughs> Cuban cigars, Cuba, Cubador. I didn't that's know. Awesome. I wasn't a sophisticated kid. Yeah. And I was like 25, 26 years old. And uh, they brought the box around. They opened it up. And I said something about I mentioned Cubidor. And everyone looked at me like I was a fucking asshole. Uh, and, uh, and one or two guys made a comment and a joke. And I felt like a dick. And I just didn't fit in there. Um, there were some nice people there. And everyone was nice. I just didn't fit in. Um, doing the slip and fall game was fantastic because I was around hustlers and I'm an an entrepreneur. I'm just an entrepreneur who can't come up with an invention, but I can write. (laughs) And uh, I went out and I was entrepreneurial and I reached out to every guy my dad ever worked with. And I was like, I'm the lawyer for, I'm the personal injury lawyer for for construction workers. I come from a construction family, blah, blah, blah. And I got cases. Um, Eventually I took that world and wrote my first screenplay called slip and fall about Hmm. a corrupt personal injury lawyer in Brooklyn. And it was the first thing I ever wrote. And uh, I submitted it on a whim to the New York Independent Film Festival, and it got accepted. And it wound up winning Best Screenplay. And I wrote it while I was still, I took a week off from work when I was a lawyer, and I, I banged it out in nine days, a week and two weekends. You, wait a minute. So had you, had you been writing this time? I mean, obviously. I'd always wanted to write. I was that was say, my dream. When I, was, I started writing when I was six. And stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When I was six, I, I wrote a. 
home in my head and I remember <laughs> getting an endorphin rush. I'm not even kidding. Yeah, I, like I felt something and I still feel it today. When you write a good line, when you write a line of dialogue and it sucks and you're like, oh my God, that sucks. You kind of know it sucks. Like it hurts your ears, mm-hmm. especially in television, especially in network television. Sometimes you have to do exposition and, and you know it, it hurts your ears. So you try to make it as non-painful as possible. And uh, I remember writing this poem in my head and thinking, oh, my God, that, that felt good. And uh, I always wanted to be a writer. I didn't think you can make money doing it. Mm-hmm. And when your parents kill themselves to send you – my parents paid for my college. I was mm-hmm. very, very lucky. Um, when I was a kid, I, I worked during summers. I worked during Christmas breaks, during that stuff. During the school year, I wanted a job to have spending money. And my dad would say, no, your job is to study. He's like, that's your job. Hmm. He's like, you want money? I'll give you money. You want to go to a movie? God you know, forbid some girl wants to go on a date with you. I will give you some money to go to that movie. That's your pay, but you better study hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do and get into a good school, we'll pay for your college. And they did. There was never a question. I was very lucky and fortunate. There was never a question of how am I going to pay for college. Mm-hmm. When I said I wanted to go to school, law school, my dad was like, that's fantastic. You're on your own. Right. Go and, and my mom was like, yeah, God bless. <laughs> you know, but uh, that's all on you. Um, but it, I mean, I had a similar thing. You know, right. my parents had their own small business. We didn't have a lot of money, but they, they said, you know, same same thing. Like, your job is to go to college. You're lucky. Yeah. yeah. And, and I had the same, like, I want to make movies. I want to make TV, whatever it is. I knew I wanted to write. But the there's a disconnect, right? Like, I grew up in Boston. When you're growing up and you say... I'm watching, you know, Newhart, and yeah. I, I want to make that show. Yeah. How do I get to that? That's the you thing know? is, I, I, I know this might come shocking to you, but, you know, the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America doesn't have a lot of contacts <laughs> with Universal Pictures. Exactly, sure. And my dad did, the bakeries. Yeah, he did the baker. Your family were bakers? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Do you just, when you still, like, smell dough, or you're just like, oh, I'm home? No, I'm, oh, God, get me out of here. <laughs> I worked for my parents for years, and, like... I can't make a dozen cookies, but I can make a thousand cookies. Yeah. (laughs) My wife worked at a a bakery in Jersey. My wife, I married a Jersey girl, and uh, she worked there. She'd be, you know, you're up at 4.30 in the morning, if not earlier, and she'd go in there, and that was like her high school job. And uh, her brother used to call her a dough rat. (laughs) He'd be like, get up, you dough. He'd like wake her up in the morning, like, get up, dough rat. That's And she'd go go to work. I love that. um, Horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. (laughs) But uh, anyway, yeah, I I always wanted to, to write. And I, I, even through college, I would, I would, I never took a writing class, but I would write stories on my own in like notebooks. And so I didn't have a lap. No one had a laptop yeah. in 1990. No, I don't know if they made laptops, but yeah. barely any kids had desktops. And when I was in college, if you needed to use a computer for, you had to go to the computer lab. Mm-hmm. And you had to use a computer in there. I mean, was, right. you know, and they were like these with dot matrix printers, <laughs> and it was crazy. It was 1990. Um, but I would write stuff in, you know, notebooks and I would write short stories for my wife when we were dating and I'd write her a little story and uh, that, you know, I was broke. I'm like, here's a gift because I have no money. And uh, I never thought I could do it. But my landlord in New York had books about how to write a screenplay and he had written a couple. Um, this guy, Mr. Lee, and he's a w- wonderful guy, great guy, tough old Irish guy. His name's Robert E. Lee. Of course it is. <laughs> Tough Irish guy. Uh, and he's the kind of guy who still calls bars saloons. He's like, he's oh, got it. He's got it. He's got He's 80 something years old now. I love him. I, I still every once in a while talk to him. Uh, haven't seen him in over a decade. And he, um, 
he had a book, How to Write a Screenplay in 21 Days. And I just always loved movies, and I always wanted to write. And I took this week off from work, and I asked if I could borrow the book. And I only had, like, really, I figured I had, like, about seven days. Right. So anything the book said you had to have done by day three, oh, no. I had done by day one. <laughs> I had to triple up the speed. Oh, and that's God. how I did it. And I didn't have uh, a so I didn't have screenwriting software. Sure. So I just went tab, 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 yep. character, tab. And I did it on a, at a giant, clunky, like, Dell computer on my kitchen <laughs> table because the apartment, you know, the New York apartment mm-hmm. was so small. And it got, it got, it, it won the film festival. And, uh... Uh, so if it if you yeah. hadn't not even if you hadn't entered but if you hadn't won, what would have happened? I I'd mean, still, you I'd still be a lawyer. That on a whim. Right? I, yeah, I, I sent it to them. I was so I didn't know anything about the business. I was so ignorant. I went online, and these were you know this was mid this like this like late nineties, and uh, you know I think like I was still using web crawler. Like, do you remember that? Like, it was like a search engine. No. Like, there was no Google. Right. There wasn't Google. And I, so I, 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 there was like a search engine, like web crawler. <laughs> and I put in like screenplay because I, and, and like agent, because I thought I was going to get an agent by saying, <laughs> hey, I finished a screenplay. You want to be my, because <laughs> right. no one in New York, no one I knew had written a screenplay. I didn't know anyone who had a screenplay. I thought I'd of done course. something miraculous. I wrote a screenplay. Well, and it had to feel like that too. Yeah. Like, out because here when there's the like thing. a flood, people, you, people put screenplays in sandbags to like <laughs> right. in LA. And it but, was miraculous to you, me. Especially the first. First one and like oh my gosh. taking that week and yeah, that must have been enormous. It was it, it felt good and I but I was naive enough to think I was going to get an agent right. by doing a search. So I did this search and what came up was screenplay competition and mm-hmm. and and a list of screenplay competitions. And the New York Film Festival one was like the the, the deadline was coming up and like in a couple of weeks. So I you know just I was like yeah I'll send it and um, off of that I started getting phone calls but I didn't really. Like, I remember, like, CAA called me a bunch of times, and I never returned the phone call because I thought it was one of those – I don't know anything. I thought it was one of those businesses where it was like, oh, yeah, pay us $300, and we'll read your screenplay and evaluate it. So I'm like, who the fuck are these CAA guys? I just, and then one of my buddies uh, uh, heard the message. I had, like, one of those old tape machines yeah. that when you played your messages, it would play, like, the last four or five. And he's like, what the hell was that? And I'm like, I don't know, some assholes. He's like, dude, they're real. He's like, you need to call them back. And it had been like two weeks. And the Greif brothers uh, were the, mo- the guy I knew from college. His brother I knew had worked at Nickelodeon in some capacity. I sent him the script. He knew a guy, sent it to him, and eventually it wound up at someone at UTA. And they signed me. And a few months, I don't, the timetable's fuzzy now. It was so long sure. ago, 15 years ago almost. Um, but a few months later, uh, David Chase read it and asked me to write an episode of The Sopranos because he loved it. That's crazy. And then I took that screenplay years later and turned it into my first novel, Slip and Fall. And I, just turned, I novelized it, yeah. and it was a national bestseller. So if any of you guys want to buy it, I think I still get like a penny a book. <laughs> Please don't buy a used copy. That's nuts. I saw, so I saw Sopranos on your uh, credits, and I figured it must have been a freelance thing. Yeah. It was the one episode. It was, yeah, it was first freelance. Thing. He didn't have – Chase didn't have an open spot on staff, but he was so nice and cool about it. Yeah. He was just like, look, I don't have a job to offer you, but I, I, if you, I'd love for you to write this episode. Well, were you could, still in New York at the time? I was still a lawyer. I was yeah. a full-time lawyer. I lied to Chase. He's like, but you're a lawyer. He's like, do you have time? I'm like, I'm actually starting vacation tomorrow. I was actually yeah. starting a trial the next day. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and so I was writing at night and on weekends. And, uh, That's the one, crazy. Yeah, the one thing law school does prep you for is long hours and writing fast. And yeah. t- to this day, I think the thing that helps me in the business, I have a reputation of 
you get sent to her an outline. It's a television outline. Um, hmm. I'll have your script in 36 hours. Yeah. And, and it's, it, it, you know, it's gotta be a good outline. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, being able to sit down and just write until your neck hurts and your fingers hurt and just push through it, yeah. you push through it. Like you're like, I'm fucking playing football or something, <laughs> but, uh, well, but it is, yeah. I mean, you, the thing of writing is you want to walk away from it all the time. <laughs> you want to yeah. walk away from that computer. Well, it's amazing. It's like, as you get older, you know, and I'm just, I'm in my early fourth, like I'm like 75 years old, but, um, I have a pinched nerve in my neck and there are, and, and if that's acting up, I'll just, I'll literally strap ice to my neck and just keep typing, just numb it so you don't feel it and just keep typing because you just got to get it, especially during a television season, you got to yeah. get it done. I mean, luckily my for neck sure. hasn't bothered me for years, but when it did, um, just, you know, strap ice to it, <laughs> rub a little dirt on <laughs> it. Nuts. Yeah, I know. I mean, this is also a thing we don't talk about very much on this, but the outline does so much of the heavy lifting. I I have uh, it's a joke. It's going to sound you know like I'm being serious, but it's a joke. I call it the patented Nick Santora inverted period pyramid of writing. And if you take a piece of paper and draw a line across it, that's about six inches long. That's the breaking of the story. Mm-hmm. Then go about two inches down and indent <laughs> in about an inch and another inch and draw a line that's about four inches long. That's the outlining of the story. <laughs> then go about two inches down and draw a dot. That's how long it should take you to write it. And then I connect agree. that into an upside-down triangle or pyramid. <laughs> and put, I, I've, I've early on I, uh, in my career, I'd worked on shows. Um, every once in a while when you're on a, um, an overall deal, you know, they don't, pay, you know, when the show that you're on is, right. is on hiatus or whatever, they don't pay you to sit at home and be pretty. They, they'll, they'll stick you on a show, go help out on this show for yeah. a month. And I'll go in there and I'll see, you know, they're doing it wrong. They're doing it upside down. They're spending like really no time breaking it. They're writing a half-ass outline, and then you have to deal with throwing scripts out and doing complete, you know, page one rewrites because the studio and the network are like, what the hell is this? I would, I, I, the way we do it on Scorpion is we'll spend over a week breaking a story, a few days outlining it, and then day and a half writing it because it's all there in the outline. Absolutely. And that's the best way to do it. That really makes the most sense. Yeah, and 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 that and also by the way that saves you from you know. Every writer when that, that was hired for Scorpion, when I, when I was interviewing them, I said, listen, uh, here's the deal. I go, you, you'll never see like 6.01 on the mm-hmm. clock. At like 6 o'clock, you're out. Yeah. Um, I don't want anyone to have to work. You know, you hear these shows, oh, God, they work so hard. They work till midnight. They work till 2 in the morning. I'm like, well, you're not working hard. You're working stupid. Yeah. If you work from... 10 to 6, and you never leave the writer's room, and you order in food, and you sit there at the table and eat, and you keep talking, you're out at 6, you're, or earlier, and yeah. sometimes we leave earlier. Absolutely. Sometimes the writers will be riffing, and I'll walk, you know, I'll be in the restroom, or I'll be on a conference call, and I'll come back, and they're in the room, and it's like 6.15, and I'll be like, what the fuck are you doing here? Go home. Because you want, by the way, you want your writers to be happy, and have lives, and Absolutely. be well-balanced, and be refreshed in the morning. Yeah. Um, and I think if you spend all your time breaking the story... Then you can go home at six o'clock. Yeah. You don't have those, um, you know, those emergency fire drills of fixing a script at the last minute. Absolutely, yeah. You're not getting stuff kicked back from the yeah. director from the. the well, television, the director doesn't say shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, if a director even but they don't have ideas. <laughs> no, if a director uh, even like suggests like, what about a scene or this? Well, you're like, right. dude, shut the fuck up. <laughs> we we did this. One. Yeah, just we did, know what we're doing. Please, yes. <clears throat> um, and by the way, directors will have wonderful thoughts about. You know, what about in this scene if they come in this way, that way? I mean, I'm, I'm, you talk with, I've worked with, you know, you know, a lot of incredible mm-hmm. television directors that have been around forever. Um, 
Mel Damsky was directing MASH and Barnaby Jones and, and, and Mylon Chaloff, who's amazing, and the Dwight Littles and the Kevin Hookses and the Bobby Ross, and all these guys that are just like everyone knows their name until they're amazing television directors, and they've also directed features. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm incredibly collaborative with them, and they're my good friends, but every once in a while you get a director who comes in, and it's usually the younger guys, and it's usually guys who have done a couple of features that didn't necessarily pan out, and they're mm-hmm. used to being in charge, and that doesn't fly. Yeah. Um, it's like you're doing one episode out of 22. You are coming in here to step in and continue a voice and a tone. Yeah. It would be like if I went and worked on someone else's show and I said, you know, it'd be great. Let's just make this thing really super funny. And right. they say, well, well, you know, it's it's cold case. That's not what we <laughs> right. do. Um, I would be wrong to do that. So but anyway, I'm ram- yeah, I'm ram- yeah. I'm rambling. The, the, yeah. The writer is there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like it's it, it is your voice on that show. Mm-hmm. Um, while we were talking about the room, let's we'll jump around a little bit. But yeah. tell me about your the room on Scorpion. Tell me about putting it together. How, how big is it? Uh, the hours sound ridiculous. Yeah, it's eight. <laughs> a, it's uh, eight writers. Uh, we just you know, you read stuff. And what I what I like to do and what I always do and people make fun of me for it. Um, I get scripts sent to me. And, uh, you know, when you're staffing and you take a pile, you, get, you know, you get a hundred scripts and you have these piles of scripts and you just write a number on the cover page. What I do is I write a number on the cover mm-hmm. page and I flip it over and I write the same number on the back of the last page of the script. And I tear the cover page off and I put it in a box. By the time I get around to reading them, you don't know whose script is whose. Mm-hmm. So I don't want, and it frustrates me in the business where, you know, you don't want people saying, oh, can you, you know, please hire this person. They're my nephew. Please hire, you know, this person because they fill a quota or please hire this. I don't care if I read the scripts and I love seven or eight scripts and I look at them and they're all lesbian Samoans. I could give a flying fuck. I, you know, I want people that can write mm-hmm. because I want to go home and I don't want to work weekends and I want to be with my family. Mm-hmm. I have zero hobbies. All I do is write and go home. I don't leave my house. I'm the least well-rounded person you'll ever meet. I don't, I don't like to do anything. I haven't been anywhere. The last place I went on a vacation was March of 2001, before my wife and I had any kids. We went to Aruba. We went, went for a week. I was there, and by the third day, I said, I hate it here. It's too windy. The sun is p- smashing into my legs. It feels like a bunch of little bee bites, and I was miserable. All I want to do is, is write and go home, be the fuck left alone, and... And so I want writers that can just make my life easier and make the show better. Uh, the per- and, and the perfect example of that was was Prison Break. Mm-hmm. I did all four, all eighty four episodes of that show. It was the greatest experience of my life. And man, the writers in that room could hit. Really? Karen Usher was amazing. Oh, Zach mm-hmm. Estrin was amazing. Kalinda Vasquez was amazing. And. You know, and Kalinda Vasquez, she was an assistant. We had assistant. Seth Hoffman was an assistant. He moved up. A lot of people think, oh, you get the assistant job and then you get the writing job. Fuck that. You got to be able to write. Absolutely. I tell every assistant I've ever had, if you are a good writer and a good person, I'll do everything I can for you. If you are a good writer and a bad person, I'm not going to do shit for you because I'm not going to like you. Right. And you better want to spend the day in the yeah, with you. And you better live and uh, live, work and play well with others. And you can tell how assistants treat each other if they're catty. Hmm. They're not coming back next season. And then if you're a good person, a bad writer, I can't do anything for you. I can give you tips and help, but if you don't work at it all the time, you know, you get better every time you write, as I do and every, I think everyone does. Um, but at the end of the day, you just want people that can write. 
And so I read certain scripts. And the other thing, the other fallacy is people think, well, you're the showrunner. You can hire whoever you want. Bullshit. I lucked out that everyone I really liked that I wanted to hire was able to get on the show. But, you know, you have people. I always tell people, like people like, oh, can I send you a script? And I said, there's no point. I don't make the final call. I don't make the decision. You got studio, you got four or five studio executives. You got four or five network executives. You got producers involved. You've got all, sometimes if you have a big enough star on the show, they're going to weigh in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's bananas town. I mean, it's just nuts. And uh, I was lucky on Scorpion. I read scripts and I met with people. Um, one per, and, and, and the funny thing is, is one script, I, it was a feature. I read like the first 20 pages. And, mm-hmm. and when I met with this writer, I told her, I was like, I only read the first 20 pages of your script. Uh, I don't know how it ended, but man, it was really, and and one of the producers in the office right there in front of her said, I can't believe you just said that. And I'm like, it's a compliment. Yeah, I knew within. She I don't, can write. Yeah, I don't need to see Don Mattingly take a hundred <laughs> at bats. I know after the tenth one, he can swing the stick. Exactly. And this, and, and the funny thing is, this this writer, uh, her name's Liz Bell. She's so good. Turns out she's related to a CBS executive. I had no fucking idea, <laughs> no clue. Different last name, yeah. no idea. She got the job because she's goddamn good. Right. And, you know, that's how it should be. And I, I don't, I don't. It's care. rarer and rarer, though. Like, yeah, it's, it's really lucky that you wound up with a room full of people, people that, that you actually want. Like, I, I can, I can definitely let my opinion be known, um, <laughs> sure. but you have to be political. I think yeah. in my younger, younger, angry young man phases, I let my opinion be known a little too often. <laughs> and I think uh, my agent had to say to me, you know, everyone really likes you, but you got to shut the fuck up once in a while. And, and know who your audience is once in a while. Um, but, I, I, uh, you know, like Paul Grelong, who's a, a friend of yours, mm-hmm. he just wrote a script that I just thought was really good. And I met with him. And you can just kind of tell he has a motor. Hmm. And he does have a motor. Yeah. He's, he, he's in the room. I mean, he, fit, he comes back from after being on set for seven days, and, and, or excuse me, eight days, eight filming days. Yeah. And actually, we do eight and a half days on the show. It's really nine filming days. But, uh, you know, some days you're, you know, doing night shoots. You're, you're filming from 5 p.m. till 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning. And the next day, he's in the, in the writer's room, and he's like, let's go. What do we got? What's cooking? Let's do it. Grelong doesn't get tired. Yeah. Okay. His nickname in the writer's room is the Creepy Professor <laughs> because he has that beard. Or, yeah. or weird beard, but he has that beard, and he always wears a sweater. And I told with, with a collared shirt underneath. And I told him one day, I'm like, oh, buddy. "You're the creepy professor <laughs> that, like, you know, someone got a bad grade, and they come to you office hours, and you're kind of <laughs> suggesting if they slept with you, they get a better grade." Uh, and so we all call him creepy professor now. <laughs> He's a great guy. This is uh, how long did it take you to learn? The that he was creepy, really. To learn that he's creepy, instantly, you know, you know immediately. <laughs> uh, to learn the politics of. The room of running a show or even just being on a show. The room, the, there are no real politics in a room if I'm running the show. Sure. Um, well, you make, you make, uh, you the, make the Well, you make the, but you make the room. And, yeah. and you can kind of tell if someone like, oh, my God, that, that person just has bad mojo around them. They've got a bad vibe. They're not going to be collaborative. And you ask around, too. I mean, it's a small okay. town. And that's something my agent taught me early on when I was a little bit more confrontational. He's like, he's like dude, it's a small town. And it's not like I, well, I, I got into it with one of my first showrunners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and my agent was like, look, that's fine. 
what he did was kind of out of line. He's like, the show's over. He's like, but moving forward, you know, just know people talk. It's very small business. You meet with writers and you go, I like their writing. I like them. And normally before I even meet with them, I'll then make phone calls. All you do is look at IMDb, who they worked with. And I'll invariably know people they've worked oh, with. Yeah. And you make the phone calls and you hear, really good, really hardworking. She's sharp. He's tough. You know, he, he comes in and if you give him big notes, he doesn't wither. He just, he's tough. And he goes, or she's tough. And he goes, great, let me dive into it and, and, and fix it. Um, and then there, there are people where you read something and you're like, this is good. And then you hear from three people life's too short. You don't even take the meeting. Yeah. Um, and then, so you kind of decrease the odds of getting assholes in the room by doing your due diligence. And so that's kind of sets the tone in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, prison break was a happy accident. Hardly anyone knew anybody. Hmm. And they're still some of my best friends in the business. We, we had so much fun and I really learned Really learned how to run a show on that show. It was like four years of college. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did you pretty much have the same room the whole time? The entire time. That's we cool. added one person in season four, uh, Graham Roland, um, who went from stocking shelves at like a Barnes and Noble to writing on Prison Break oh, awesome. in, in a matter of months. He wrote it. You, people ask, like, how do, I, how do I get a job? How do I do this? How do I break into the business? Write an amazing script. Yeah. He wrote an amazing script. I still, this is it. This was eight, no, no, it was probably six years ago. I still remember the name of the script. It's called Finding Mendy. Hmm. And it was fantastic. And he came on, and he was a, he was a former Marine. So he just had this wow. work ethic. He was quiet. He was like, what do you want me to do? And he just did the fucking job. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, he, he's today a very successful go-to writer. I would mm-hmm. put him on anything I do. I've tried to my last two projects. He's never available because someone always wants him. <laughs> um, but that's, that's amazing. Yeah, we added him. And then part-time, <laughs> a couple of days a week, Nick Wooten uh, consulted. And now he's on Scorpion with me. And we're having a blast because he's when you can work with a friend – it's it's so great, That's and awesome. and we laugh. Wooten will hate me saying this, but he's <laughs> uh, he and I are both incredibly immature, and there's a, you know a lot of fart jokes and a lot of nonsense, sure. and we just laugh all day long. There might even be a lot of farts. I mean, who knows? Um, but we we have fun together. We have fun with all these writers. The politics of dealing with um, executives and things of that nature. I'm still working on that. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what have you what have you learned over the years? I mean, like Prison Break. I think people forget that was pretty huge, pretty fast. That was at he- a time when shows could be huge too. Yeah, and and that show too. I would say this, and I say this because, and 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 I don't say it to sound cocky because I consider that like you know the ultimate group effort because everyone on sure. that show was so good. Um, that season one of that show, I think, is one of the most underappreciated, oh undervalued God. seasons of television. And even season two, we had eight guys break out of prison at once, and we followed all these disparate storylines and had them intersect organically. Mm-hmm. I think it was season two, uh, season one was just the most fun to yeah. watch. I remember it was just a ride and a puzzle, yeah. and like it was really cool. Season two, I feel like, was ahead of its time 
in that kind of storytelling. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's a kind of thing. You see that on Walking Dead now. Yes. Right? It's following these disparate and stories. Some might say Walking Dead even took a few things from season two, <laughs> like cutting a guy's hand off who was sure. handcuffed. I mean, that was teabag all the way. That's right. That's right. Um, that, yeah. I remember in the writer's room when I suggested <laughs> that, and they were like, oh, then we got to go through a whole thing. We have to figure out how he has to pick the lock. And I'm like, and everyone's like, it's always such bullshit when someone picks handcuff locks. It always looks, e- even though it's not that difficult, but it, and I'm like, let's cut let's his fucking, I'm like, let's cut his fucking hand off. Let's right. chop his hand off. And I remember the actor called me up. He's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Bob Nepper. And I was like, trust me, it'll look good. And Bob Nepper, man, one of the best actors I'll ever write for. Yeah. He's amazing. But anyway, um, the, the <clears throat> politics of, um, like I said, like, like what I'm learning is, is everyone wants the same thing. Everyone wants a hit show. Um, some people, some executives over the years I've met, I remember one executive, I can't say his name, but was making my life miserable and everyone involved with the show miserable. And this was years and years and years ago. And finally said, um, let's go out for a drink. Let's hang. And he didn't know how. We, and we went out for a drink. And I thought it was going to be a look. You got to back off a little bit. You got to let us do you like you're micromanaging the art here. And he got low. I, I'm not a big drinker uh anymore um back as a kid a little different story but um i had like you know a beer and he got loaded and it came out and he just said god if i could and he was so drunk he's like god if i could do anything i just wish i was a writer (laughs) and 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 i looked at him when he's drunk i looked at him i go right there i'm like that's why you're fucking up my show yeah. I'm like, dude, if you want to be a writer, go write something, but you can't do it on my show. Wow. I'm like, please, I'm begging you. And, 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 and he backed off after that. Like he was, he remembered the next morning, the conversation, cause the notes were cut by 70%. And I think he may have realized I'm trying to write through their show. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he didn't know it until then also. Maybe who knows, you know, uh, in, <laughs> took that, what is that it? Vino Veritas yeah, exactly. or something. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the truth came out. So <laughs> who the hell knows? That's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Now, um, tell me a little bit. Uh, Prison Break must have been a tough show to write. I mean, it was yeah. serialized in a way that shows really weren't at the time. No, yeah. So you, your writers couldn't have been very used to that kind of thing. Um, uh, and then it was twenty four. I had, episodes, ne- I had right? never done anything like that before. One season was twenty four episodes. Right. Um, the last season. Uh, oh, okay. But um, no, I had never done that type well, of serialized storytelling story before. Break. It really is, and it got really big. And the one thing that we kept saying, and I, and I know, you know, I know who the audience of this show is. So I don't want to make any enemies, but we had an expression in the room which was "no polar bears," which was in reference to Lost. <laughs> um, I had friends who were writing on Lost. Um, I can't say who they were. Season uh-huh. one, and I was watching football with some of them. Season one, telling or one of them, telling them how much I was loving the show. Season one, I'm like. I go, but on Prison Break, man, we've got a huge conspiracy and all this stuff going on and the tattoos and everything. And we, you know, it's such a, a struggle. We're bending our brain to make sure it all pays off. I'm like, how are you going to pay all this stuff off? And he literally looked at me and goes, we're not. And this was season one. I go, what do you mean you're not? And he's like, we, we don't know what any of this shit. We just like literally think of the weirdest, most fucked up thing and write it and we're never going to pay it off. And I, and I looked at him, I'm like, that's that's such bullshit. I'm like, you are completely fucking with the audience. Like, yeah. I, I want to bring a you're cl- betraying them. I want to bring a class action lawsuit on behalf of <laughs> everyone who watched Lost all those years. Right. I went home and told my wife, I'm like, we're done watching this. I'm like, it's all a wank. None of the. I'm like, the, yeah. the, the, the lottery, the lotto numbers or the lottery numbers do not match up to the combination in any meaningful way. The polar bear doesn't mean shit, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
Nina Hartley jerked people off less than lost it. And and I look and by the way, I wish I I'm, I'm saying it right now to everyone involved in the show. Right. I wish I created a show that was a cultural touchstone the way that show was. I never have. I probably never will. <laughs> that being said, you know, it was a jerk off. <laughs> um, and we said in Lost, uh, I mean, in, in, in Prison Break, we can't know polar bears. Mm-hmm. And we would set things up. And if you go back, like there was an episode like episode 16, I think, of season one where we did a, a flashback episode where we saw all of them before they went into prison. Mm-hmm. And we set up tattoos and codes and stuff that we paid off in like episode 10 of season two. That's how far ahead we were planning shit. I'm not, the show was, wasn't perfect. The, the, the strike really mm-hmm. fucked us up. We only had 13, we had a whole thing. Like that show we would spend, before we even started filming, months, like we would come in earlier than most shows yeah. to break out what that season was going to be. And then they said, uh, we're going on strike. You have to do this all in 13 episodes. And we just had to accordion that thing down. And it affected that season. And then season four, we were just pulling the taffy so thin you could see through it. <laughs> and by the time we got to the end of season four, I believe we gave um, really emotional ending. Um, it was really tough. I, I, you know, I struggled with the killing off of Michael Schofield. Um, uh, it was something, the, the, you know, the actor really loved that ending and thought it was poetic, you know, dying a hero, the studio and network were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, although for all fans of the show, I will tell you this little secret, Michael Schofield's still alive. <laughs> we saw him touch those things. We saw the electricity go off. Nice. We never saw his body and maybe just maybe <laughs> he disappeared so he could keep his wife and unborn child safe forever. Um, and so that's what I, believe um but uh yeah i'll go on i can look obviously i am going on forever but prison break i could talk about forever because it was just the best experience well let me ask you you know we talk a lot about how a show evolves you know once actors come on board once production starts obviously things change you know this is a show that you guys you came in early you started planning out these details what happens when an actor doesn't work out or you find an actor that you love that you want to keep around something like that? Yeah, it's 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 tough. Um, you cast someone sometimes and sometimes you're like, oh, you know what? They're not right for this part. We thought they were. Sometimes I've been in situations. This isn't necessarily prison break, but you've been in situations where it's like this actor's a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Um, they're causing problems on set. They're causing problems with the other. The other actors can't work with him or her. Um, and the, sometimes those people, their characters just get killed off in, in various shows, or you just, you find yourself not writing for them as much. Um, it, it, it just happens. Um, I've been really fortunate in my career to really not deal with that experience a lot. Um, I've worked with some, you know, I've, I've worked with actors who've been around, like I, I worked with Dennis Quaid for a year. Um, and you know, he's guy's been doing this since he was a kid effectively. Mm. And he's had so much success. And if he wanted to, could be a, total asshole and he's instead he's like the nicest friendliest just dude he just he's a pro he's like uh let me come in and act and go home <laughs> yeah do your job. I can do my job and go home yeah. and uh you know you I, i've my experience has been much more in that vein of working with That's with great. people like that breakout kings which uh i think is a show that just did not get its due that was a mm-hmm. fun show i think maybe the funniest our cop drama ever made. I mean, we had Jimmy Simpson from Always Sunny in Philadelphia on it. That was a battle getting him cast. I'm sure. Because people are like, why are we even bringing in comedy guys? I'm like, because Jimmy Simpson's a 
freaking genius well, as he's like, showing on House of Cards right now. Yeah, I, it was it, it was a thing again that wasn't really done at the time was having yeah. this kind of comedy, Humor. even dark comedy in yeah. a drama. And that show, and there was there was racial comedy on that show, which is very hard to get by. <laughs> um, but it was true to the character, um, and who wasn't a racist. He just stated facts that he thought were true, and if they offended, he didn't care. As he said on the show, I'm not a racist, I'm a factist. Um, And that show I loved, but the cast on that show loved each other. Oh my God! They became really good friends. They 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 worked great together. They'd hang out afterwards. That's you know kind of what I'm seeing on Scorpion right now is they just get along, and that just makes your life so much easier. We've got the Terminator on my show, uh, you know, on Scorpion, and he's you know the guy that when they have questions they look to because he's done everything because we have a young cast. Mm-hmm. I got a 22 year old kid on my show. Oh, you know, Ari Lord. Stidham turned 22 a couple of months ago, and he's starring in a CBS drama. And it's nice for him to be working with someone like Robert Patrick if he has a question. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you just get serendipity. Things just fall together. That's great. Um, uh, I want to talk about a couple other things. I know you wanted to ask me about Punisher Warzone. I really did. I know. Because I have not seen it. But this is a film that... It's got a cult kind of following Yeah, people talk about this thing like, these guys got it right. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if that is the script. I don't know if that is the direction. I mean, I know people if, talk if about any, both. Look, but. any any credit to these guys got it right should go to Lexi Alexander, who mm-hmm. directed it. Um, I, I don't know Lexi well at all. Um, after the uh, film came out, she uh, at, wanted to get lunch Um and we went and got lunch, and she was very sweet. She's sweet, and she's beautiful, and she's charming, and she's like a badass kickboxer, yeah. and there's so much to like about her. I, I really don't know her. I just had that one lunch with her. Um, uh, but that being said, look, it's not my kind of movie. Uh, I, it was way broad for me. Uh-huh. It was crazy broad so for my tastes. How, um, did you, how did it wind up in your lap? There had been a, a, a draft written of the script, and I had never done sold a feature before, or even gotten a feature job before. Oh, really? And it, and it was dead. And they really wanted to make it. Lionsgate wanted to make it because the first one with Travolta and Thomas Jane made so much money overseas. Really? It was very profitable for them. Mm-hmm. And Marvel and Lionsgate wanted to do it. But they had a script that, that wasn't working mm-hmm. uh, in, in their you know, opinion. And so they asked me if I would take a crack at it. And what I came up with is, as I said, the Punisher's whole raison d'etre is vengeance because of what happened to his family, a family that got destroyed. Like, what if he destroyed a family unintentionally? Hmm. What if he went in and shot up a bunch of criminals, not realizing one of them was an undercover cop trying to infiltrate them? And he took away a daddy and a husband to people that needed them. And or from people that needed them. And there was humor in there in the script and there. But there was a lot of heart and the relationship with him and the little kid. And Lexi, God bless her. She took it and made it. I mean, Dominic West was a cartoon character in this thing. I mean, he was bananas. I mean, there was a there's a scene where a guy with a Punisher punishes a guy in the face and his face shatters. His fist goes through the skull that's and cracks right. open the face. And it's, it's, it's bananas. <laughs> um, but people 
love it. I mean, um, what was it? What's that podcast? How the hell did this get made? Yeah. Well, this is where I first heard. Yeah, that. it was well, Patton s- talking about s- it with Lexi on it. Yeah, and, yeah. and someone sent Wild. it. To, someone sent. And to her credit, Lexi's like, "Oh, I love Nick Santoro's credit." She says nice things about me. Yeah. I'm not saying anything bad about her movie. Absolutely. People love it. It's become this cult thing. Yeah. It's not necessarily what I envisioned when I wrote it <laughs> that it would be. You know, the, and it's more like the visuals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a speech that Dominic West is giving at some point in the, in the middle of of, of the uh, a movie, and, and an American flag appears behind him, and it's waving, and he's talking to all these gangsters from various gangs, and 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 they're playing patriotic music, and he's like, and we are gonna you know forge together, and it's it's crazy town, but. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, may, maybe it really was ahead of its time. It's 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 people love it. But when people told one of my friends sent me that link to that podcast and, and, and I'm such a, an admirer of, of Pat Oswalt's mm-hmm. ability. And I'm just like, oh, no, Pat Oswalt's going to shit all over no. my movie. It was the exact he opposite. Loves it. And, and so if someone as as sharp as Pat and likes it, maybe I should just take the compliment <laughs> and move on. Well, it's, um, it's an interesting thing. I was curious to hear your take on it. Yeah, uh, it sounds like the script and. The director are telling, are speaking two different languages, and somehow it comes together to make some crazy thing that works. Yeah, I, I think if if Lexi left her own devices, was to have created her own story, I don't think there would have been yeah. a heart, the heart thing with the little girl and the family. It just would have been Punisher running around shooting people. Yeah, I think you're right. Me left to my own devices. If I had filmed it, would have filmed <laughs> it probably darker and not as. It, it looks right. like a comic book come to life. Visually, it's right. quite a, arresting in a good way. There wouldn't have been that crazy that element yeah, of, of but wildness. People like look. The, the coolest thing that came out of it for me is that um, I created. There was a character in it, Jigsaw's brother, which didn't exist in the Marvel universe, and I created this character, uh, Looney Bin Jim, and that he breaks out of the insane asylum, and you know. I can, you know, say I created a Marvel character to me. And when I was a kid, I read a lot of comics and I, I love that shit. And, and the fact that I, you know, it's not a famous Marvel character. It's not a Marvel character that's ever appeared in a comic book. It fucking counts. <laughs> it, it counts. Really that's cool. all that matters to me. Um, I want to talk about the book while we still have time. Yeah. Uh, the new book. Um, I want an alien for Christmas. Yes. You can go online and buy now, it. Now, all you do is write. Yeah. <laughs> you write and you hang out with your family. That's it. Um, what What made this? Uh, it's, is it a young adult or a kid's book? It's a, it, you, I'd say it's for 6 to 12 or 13-year-olds. Okay. Um, you can read it to a 6 or 7-year-old. It's, it's, it's too hard for, mm-hmm. you know, if you have an advanced 7-year-old, they could read it. But, you know, 6-year-olds, um, and five, even five, my 5-year-old loves it. Mm-hmm. I'd say, you know, 5 to 12 or 13-year-olds. And um, it's a chapter book. It's like 50,000 words. It's half the length of one of my crime novels, mm-hmm. and uh, which are called Slip and Fall and 15 Digits. <laughs> please check Because I'm a whore, so please <laughs> no, buy them. No, let people know. They're um, going to want to find them. Yeah, I want to find them. Now. But this, they're, they're fun books. And um, uh, I want an alien for Christmas. See, what, what a lot of people don't know, what you probably don't know, is on December 17th, Santa Claus does a test run. <laughs> to prepare for a week later on the 24th. He does weather patterns and charts it and navigates it with his head elf Elvis and his sleigh. Absolutely. And when he was going behind... This is a, all in the Bible. It's all in the Bible. It's all in the Bible. It's in the book of Genesis. <laughs> and when he goes behind a uh, cloud bank, he smashes into a star hopper, which is the equivalent of, like, an alien jet ski. <laughs> and our, you know, 10-year-old alien Gug, who's on vacation with his family, smashes into Santa... 
Santa flies, Santa and Elvis fly up and tumble and land in the star hopper while Elvis flies up and tumbles and lands in the sleigh. <laughs> the reindeer turn around and see this little green alien. They freak out. Reindeer are stupid and they try to run away from the alien and you can't run away when you're attached and they crash in the small town of Millbrook Falls, New Hampshire, where Theo, Olivia and Sophie Bartlett discover them and realize an alien's down here, Santa's up there, we have to get them back together and save Christmas. While all of this is going on, Santa Claus is zapped. The minute he lands in the star hopper, he is zapped by a traction or, a, or a, an electron beam, which makes him disappear and wind up in the loading bay of the mothership because the parents were on vacation with their 10 kids who were all out star hopping and they weren't <laughs> listening, come back into the mothership, so they zapped him. And there are little blips on the screen, so the parents don't realize that it's Santa and Elvis in there. Santa and Elvis uh, get caught in the mothership. A kid is missing, and they are brought in front of an intergalactic tribunal and put on trial um, while the kids are trying to track down where Santa is and save them. All the while, a, uh, a, a an Air Force uh, airman from NORAD who saw the, the streak through the sky and realizes holy shit, the flashpoints of metal, because Santa's sleigh, sleigh runners are copper, and they give off a certain heat index when they're going fast enough, he connects them and realizes it's the runner of a sleigh, and goes, holy shit, that's Santa's sleigh, <laughs> and on December 17th, 20 years ago, when I was a kid, he, I saw him through a telescope, oh and he winked at me, because he, he he's magic, he knew I was looking, and I thought that was special, and I was going to get the retro rock, you know, the C- Commander Cody retro rocket with optional <laughs> bonus boosters, and I didn't get the Commander Cody retro rocket with optional <laughs> bonus boosters. I got a fucking catcher's mitt, and I have had a hard-on for Santa for years now, and I'm going to get that fucker. So he's going after Santa, and a shopping mall and a shopping mall bad Santa-type character realizes there's an alien in town, and he wants to turn him in to get a million dollars from the National Tattler, which is like the National Enquirer. So you have Santa going after the alien. You got a guy, guy that deals with space going after Santa Claus, and the school bully mixed in, and it reads like a movie, and it actually just really got... Op- yeah, just got option for a film. Congrats. Um, so, uh, which I will be producing as well as writing. Nice. And um, because writers got to stick up for themselves. <laughs> but it's, uh, I want an alien for Christmas. It's, look, I have kids. I have a 10 year old and a five year old. It is appropriate for kids. Nice. It's but, really, but it's, it's a fun idea. Yeah, it's a fun idea. A fun lot of ideas. It's a lot of ideas. It reads like a movie, and uh, you can get it online. Nice. And it's like it's like five ninety nine or something. And if it says temporary, temporarily out of stock, mm-hmm. just order it. It will get to you. Amazon is a pain in the ass. Sure. Um, what What made this? I mean, it reads like a movie. It's, it pitches like a yeah. movie. What made you say this is a book? Um, I wanted, and I, I asked that kind of across the board. Yeah. How do you kind of, because you work in all these different media, how do you decide what is the right story for the right medium? It's funny. Some things, especially now, I think the feature industry just tells you what's a movie. And if it doesn't have a That's dinosaur true. or a robot <laughs> in it, it's not a movie, unfortunately. Um, and I, I do really feel like we're in a low point in the history of film. Um, it really upsets me. Mm-hmm. Uh, every once in a while, you can get a good independent film made, but there are so many incredible mid-level features that are just not getting made. Yeah. Uh, the best scripts I've ever written are unproduced. I have I, I read samples all the time from writers, and I, I'm like, I can't believe this movie wasn't made. Um, so if I ha- like something like Alien for Christmas, if I just wrote that as a feature, especially because it's going to probably be done, a- it's going to be done animated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a tough nut to crack, so I knew if I could get an audience as a book first, yeah, it would be easier to sell. Um, 
I also, and it just became online and, and it was optioned. And I think part of that is because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm established now as a writer. So it's easier. It, it was easier for them to say, okay, we know this guy will crank out a mm-hmm. good script. And when people started reading it, they just knew instantly, oh my God, this is a movie. I mean, it reads like I can only write something. Even my books kind of mm-hmm. have the pace of, of, of film. Um, and then there are stories like 15 digits, um, that are just darker and grittier. And I just know they'll never be made as a movie. So I'm just going to write it as a book. Mm. Um, Slip and Fall, people reached out after it became a bestseller and asked if they could option it, but I'd become so emotionally attached to it. And I'd had, yeah. I just had the long shots made with Ice Cube, which um, I didn't think came out good. Mm. Um, although my understanding, the director of it was uh, Fred Durst, and my, under, my understanding is that he fought for the, uh, but for, I mean, Fred fought for the original um, version of the, of the script, and, and but... You know, you have executives telling him what right. to do. They change the script and they really they turned it from like Rudy, you know, to duty <laughs> to, to, to like, you know, they made it like a Mighty Ducks kind of movie, uh, which is not what I had written. Right. Um, so by the time people were offering slip and fall, I was like, sure. you know what? I'm going to hold on to this to it. Yeah. and uh, maybe I'm be made one day, but I would probably I would want to direct it. Mm-hmm. But you just you know, you kind of have a feel like uh, this. If it's the truth is, if you have a really good story, but it's not commercial and, you know, executives won't make it. It's like you better write a book. Yeah. Otherwise, no one's ever going to no one's ever going to hear this story. That story is just in your head. Ben. That story is just in your head. You're going to be telling yourself that story forever. And you know what it's like. You have a story and I have stories rattling. I want an alien for Christmas was a story, an idea I had uh, seven years ago. Hmm. And it just sat there for years. because I was just busy with other stuff. Mm-hmm. And then finally, um. Last year, I took you know t- took a, a month and, and, and banged it out. And, That's great. Yeah, um, kind of, are those like again nine to five days? That you're I do like when I'm writing a book. That? It's like seven to seven because I I normally only have hiatus yeah. to write side projects. Or, um, I can write features during a television season, mm-hmm. but writing uh, books is just different yeah. for me. For me. Um, so I'll do seven to seven, and that's normally when I throw my neck out is during right. during that oh, process. Brutal. Yeah, it hurts. It hurts. <laughs> and uh, you'll sit there and, you know, about, it, it sounds so lame because my dad was, a, you know, my dad climbed scaffolds carrying sheetrock sure. and he had a real physical job. But at the end of the day, seven to seven, you get up, you're like, oh, my God, my back, your ass is killing you <laughs> from sitting. It's work. It's, you know, it's, like, I mean, it's work. It's cerebral work, but it takes a, a physical toll, you know, that the kind of physical toll it takes on, you know, you know. A schmuck who does it, who types all that. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, you know, you just do the seven, seven days with the book. I think wow. that's what helps me. Because then you get home. Or, you know, if you have a good day, seven to six, it gives you an extra hour with the kids, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but that, That's amazing. I, but though. if you do that and you tell yourself, I'm going to go pick up, you know, a deli sandwich and get right back to work, you can get a lot. It's amazing how much oh, you can absolutely. get done. Absolutely. And yeah. if you're not... Like I say, you can do this during hiatus. You're, yeah. You don't have to. You don't, worry I don't have anything else to do. Things. No, I got nothing yeah, else to do. That's great. Yeah. Um, were the ki- were your kids the first audience for the book? Yeah. How yeah. They, how they like? It? They love it. I mean, they really love it. Do and they have suggestions? <laughs> they have some G- notes. Gug, my uh, oldest daughter, um, when she was about, I'd say three, she's a very creative girl, um, and she would crawl around on the floor and look up and make this funny face and go. <laughs> And go, gug 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 gug, and I'd be and I'd look at her and I'd be like, "Hey, honey, what the fuck's that?" And she, you know, I wouldn't curse, but she would look at me and she'd be like, "I'm Gug, the prehistoric bug," and the name oh Gug God. always 
And, and so we would play Gug, and the name Gug always stayed in my head. So when I wrote this, I made it Gug the Alien. That's adorable. And uh, you know, yeah, they they really like the book. Wow. And um, Scorpion is uh, a show that my my oldest is uh, moderately obsessed with. It's the first thing really? I've done that she can really watch. Um, every once in a while, like there'll be like a gunshot or a shooting, and uh, you know. I go back when I was 10, man, I was seeing so much violence on TV. It didn't turn me into a violent guy. Um, I will tell her, I'm like, there's going to be something violent here, but it's not gory. You know, it's CBS. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not gory. And it's make-believe. And, you know, daddy was 10 feet away when that happened. <laughs> right. um, but she's really into that. And that feels good when your kids can enjoy something you're doing. It motivates you to keep it on the air longer. That's really cool. Yeah. That's great. Well, congrats on the show, on the book. Oh, no, thanks. On everything. I'm glad you're – it seems like you're getting to do what you want to do. Most of the time. In in a really great way. I still want to do that great, you know, that great cable show. I still want to do my Breaking Bad, which is – Absolutely. Everyone does. You know, every writer does. It's the best – I mean, Breaking Bad, I think, is the best show for me. Mm -hmm. It's the greatest show I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would love to, uh, you know – do that type of thing one day as well. And, you know, hopefully I get to, hopefully I get direct to my, get to direct time and temperature. Right. Who the hell knows? All I know is, is <laughs> but you're uh, getting the opportunities I'm, are there. The opportunities are there. I'm, yeah. I'm incredibly fortunate and um, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy you're going to talk to today. You <laughs> well, know? Thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for it. doing it. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys. Check out. I want an alien for Christmas. Keep watching Scorpion. You're already watching it. <laughs> Keep watching it. Uh, Nick, thanks again. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 